0: Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. This story starts, as plenty of stories about fancy people do, at a dinner party. Actually, two separate dinner parties attended by the same woman. The woman, Jenny Jerome, was a socialite from Brooklyn. But you probably know her for being the mother of a man who changed history. Jenny apparently had a pretty exciting love life, but the match that put her in the history books was with a British lord, with whom she had two sons, one of whom was named Winston Churchill.
1: Somebody asked her about dining with both Benjamin Disraeli and his colleague Gladstone. It was really his arch rival, political arch rival. It would be like, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, you know, in those days.
0: Kate Murphy is a journalist who's written about Jenny Jerome's meals with these two warring British politicians. And here's something to keep in mind about these politicians that she dined with at different times – They both served as prime minister.
1: And they were asking her about dining with these two very powerful gentlemen. And she answered, well, after dining with Gladstone, I thought he was, I'm paraphrasing here, one of the most brilliant people in the world. But after dining with Disraeli, I thought I was the most brilliant person in the world. Not surprisingly, Jenny liked feeling that she was brilliant. And Disraeli had the talent for really listening and really trying to find out about the other person and making the other person feel important. And that wasn't just sort of a political move of, you know, schmoozing and and work in the room. It was how he learned about people, how he took the
0: pulse. That way of taking the pulse, Murphy says, is both a science and an art, but it has fallen away, crowded out often by
1: technology. Everybody has a story. Everybody has something that you can learn from them. From my many years as being a journalist, I found that to be true. And if I have a conversation that I haven't really gotten something meaningful or something that I can use or something that adds to my knowledge base after I leave the conversation, the fault is mine. I didn't ask the right question because it's in there. Modern life has brought with it
0: an epidemic of loneliness, not just in the U.S., but everywhere. In Japan, Murphy points out, you can rent a friend, a date, a family member. Now that seems a little bit unusual, but here's where you can hire somebody to act as any of those folks.
1: Because they're terribly lonely and they don't have a replacement. They're estranged from their son. So they hire this actor, essentially, to come and act like your son someone to come and listen to you. Like a bachelor will hire a quote unquote wife to be waiting when he comes home and say, how was your day? Because he doesn't have that. You know, and it's, it's our culture too, though Japan has, has developed a quite unique way to handle it, these companies, though I, I can see how that might happen here as well. The problem, Murphy
0: argues, is listening, which is why her most recent book is called, You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. And she says the problem is getting considerably worse. In the 1980s, around 20% of Americans said that they felt lonely and left out, even when other people were around. Now that 20% has climbed to nearly 50%, again, even when other people are around. That's a big spike up. Why? Well, lots of us feel like we're starring in our own movie, a Twitter movie, an Instagram movie. We're focused on ourselves. And it's hard to pay attention to anybody else.
1: We've all been at a lunch or a dinner and people have been sneaking glances at their phone. And I don't wanna believe this all on technology. I'm not anti-technology because, you know, I love my iPhone as much as anyone else. (laughs) It's a great tool for keeping in touch with people when you're away from them. But when you're in their company and in their presence, it degrades the relationship it degrades your ability to connect, it degrades your ability to listen, and it makes people feel horribly lonely. And we've all had that feeling like, how are you gonna feel comfortable telling somebody something sensitive, something that is really meaningful to you If somebody's sneaking a glance at a phone, you're just not going to, you're going to leave it to the superficial level of conversation. And studies have borne this out. It isn't, and we all know this intuitively, but they have done studies that just show the level of the conversation plummets when the phone is on the table, even if everyone at the table has been told it's off. Okay. And it's, these types of studies have been replicated over and over. It's not, you know, in your head when you are with somebody, it's actually something that happens. And so what happens? happens as a result. You're having these soul sucking conversations, and you leave the lunch, the dinner, whatever the occasion is, and you leave and you go home and you feel kind of empty and alone. And that is what's happening. And it's accelerating more and more the more we get attached to our devices. But then, you know, look what's happened with COVID where we've had to be isolated from one another. I do actually feel kind of hopeful though, because if anything good is gonna come out of COVID, it's that people have really realized, wow, Zoom doesn't cut it. Yeah. You, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, wow, just texting back and forth, that's not the same. And you get covetous of the things that you've been denied. And when we've been separated from one another, we've really, understood the value of relationships and in-person relationships. Right, right, right.
0: It's funny because I have a memory of a dinner, and I have to say this dinner was before COVID, but um, mm-hmm. where it was pretty fancy place and there was a couple sitting next to us. And I mean, they here they are, they've like paid to come out to this place And they were just each of them on their phones the entire time, Uh which is an interesting juxtaposition because here you are with somebody else. And also when you're on your phone, a lot of what you're doing potentially is listening to somebody, right? You're maybe texting back and forth, but there's somebody there to listen to, too. So it's like a very strange kind of conundrum where you're kind of listening to what's being told to you on the phone, but you're also not listening to the person in person.
1: Well, I guess maybe I would dispute that because I don't think you can kind of listen. Okay. To, you know, When you're, you know, like kind of pregnant, um, yeah, you, right. you, you, when you're on your phone and you're texting with someone, yeah, nobody's really listening to each other. We're not hearing the tone of voice. We're not seeing the facial expression. We don't know the context. We're not able to really pick up on those subtle facial cues, even, you know, there's so much information we're getting that's below our level of consciousness. Just even, this was one of the really fascinating pieces of uh, research that I found in uh, working on the book, that we actually change color subtle coloration changes in our our face and it doesn't matter what you know ethnicity you are what starting color of your skin was we all have these subtle changes in shade because you know, we have all these little capillaries close to the surface of the okay. skin on our face and so all of these different colorations signal different emotions and so there's different coloration for anger for irritation for joy And we're all picking this up on a subconscious level and it informs our understanding of what the other person is saying. There's so much richness to an in-person conversation. And even when you're on the phone and not texting, a lot of what we get comes from the tonality and what they call the prosody of someone's voice. And so if you and I were just texting back and forth, yeah. We would lose yeah. so much information. In fact, a lot of researchers have found that it's as little as 7% of the meaning of someone's message is contained in the actual words. Mm. And the rest of it comes from tonality, from nonverbals. It's just you're losing so much. So if you think about are you listening to someone as you're somebody sitting there on the phone versus this person that can give you a world of information being in front of you, we're impoverishing ourselves. Right. So
0: to go back to that idea of people feeling like increasingly alone. Another piece of data that you write about that really struck me was that studies have found eighth graders who are heavy users of social media increase their risk of clinical depression by 27%. And they are 56% more likely to say they're unhappy than peers who spend just less time on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram. And that seems like it kind of comes back to the idea of like, you feel like you're with people but not really in the same way as when you are really closely listening to somebody or them to you.
1: There's another bit of research that shows that when you are in the presence of another person, and this doesn't happen when you're online. And again, I'm not anti technology. I'm just saying that this is a piece of being a human being and why we felt so bereft during COVID is being separated from one another. Because when you're in that presence of the other person and you're having all this wonderful interplay, much of it below our level of consciousness, you know, all this stuff that we're picking up. There is actually something that happens within the brain. They've done fMRI scans that show that our brain waves of the speaker and the listener actually sync up. There's a mirroring of our brain waves. And that is that wonderful feeling that we've all felt when you've talked to someone and you just feel like, "Oh my gosh, that other person gets me." Or, you know, or, I get what they're saying. Ah, you know, that just feeling and it's almost in your solar plexus was like just a little dopamine surge within us. And that's exactly what's happening, because when those neural brainwaves sync up, there is this cascade of neurochemicals that go through our body. And not only does it just make us feel good, but it also adds to our physical health. It increases our immunity. And that's why it feels so good. That is really evolution saying, "Okay, this is what's going to keep sustain you as a society, as a species.
0: Hmm. Let's take a quick break here. I'm talking with Kate Murphy. She's the author of You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. On our website, we're going to have more on some of the studies that we talked about earlier in the show, particularly the increase in loneliness, which 20% of Americans reported in the 1980s now it's reported by 50% of Americans. That's at innovationhub.org. From GBH and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. Back in just a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the fall of 2020, when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated to the Supreme Court and went through congressional hearings, she didn't say a whole lot. And that is not just because Supreme Court nominees try to keep themselves as far as humanly possible from controversy. It was also because the people asking her questions mostly could not have cared less about what she said.
1: Now, I noticed yesterday we were assured that you would not be attacked on the basis of your faith I noticed that didn't last 24 hours. But I'm not surprised because for three and a half years, we have heard consistent attacks from the Democrat side on nominees on the basis of their faith, including, of course, you, Judge Barrett.
0: I believe, and I think the American people have to understand that you would be the polar opposite of Justice Ginsburg. She and Justice Scalia were friends, yes, but she never
1: embraced his legal philosophy.
0: None of our Democratic colleagues want to talk about the justices they want to see on the court would strike down every single reasonable restriction on unlimited abortion on demand that the vast
1: majority of Americans support. To call them a hearing is, (laughs) I mean, the ultimate irony of anybody who has watched those because nobody's listening. Nobody wants to hear what these poor souls who have been, you know, whether you agree with the person or think the person's evil, who's before the committee, they don't get a chance to say anything. And even when they're asked a question, the congressional member will cut in and say, no, 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 you know, I'm gonna answer it for you.
0: Kate Murphy is the author of You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters.
1: And the thing is, is, is those are our quote unquote leaders. And you see that as an example. And then look at news programs, quite frankly, and even radio shows where people ask these loaded questions that really they're answering it within the question when they are talking to somebody. So if that's our examples of how to listen or how a quote unquote hearing is supposed to go, people really don't have anything to look at of, well, what is listening What does it mean to really listen? And that was the shocking thing I found in researching the book, is I would always ask people, what does it mean to be a good listener?
0: Murphy says in a world in which political belief is almost always more important than dialogue and in which technology has made us all stars, at least on social media, it's hard to do much listening when you're busy filling a void. But, and here's the irony, even though people may not really know how to be good listeners,
1: They know a bad listener when they find one. Things like looking at the phone or responding in an illogical way or changing the subject or looking over someone's shoulder to see who else they could be talking to, those types of things. And it really goes to show that we have more experience not being listened to than being really heard. But listening is made
0: even more challenging by the fact that we often don't have to actually do it. We watch the programs we agree with. We follow the folks whose views we already embrace. It feels a bit like listening, but is it?
1: You're actually kind of not listening because you're just doing a replay of what's already in your head. So you're not challenging yourself. You're not really trying to take in this information and process it. And when I talk about listening, there's a very big difference between listening and hearing. And and hearing is passive and Listening is where you're really taking in all this information, taking in the context, taking in the motivation of the speaker, the speaker's level of understanding, what they may be trying to convince you of that maybe you may not be ready for. And if you're able to listen to other people without getting anxious and open to hearing all sides and knowing that everyone, while you may not agree with them, might have something that is valuable that you can learn from if only to know how they arrived at that conclusion so you can make a better argument. Right.
0: Um, C-SPAN, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but for many, many years they showed during presidential election years usually um, these focus groups that went on for hours and Peter Hart, who is a Democratic pollster, used to run them. But it was basically just him asking people questions and sometimes even like, I remember him putting up pictures of politicians, maybe people like John Kerry or John McCain. Or whatever, and they, he would say to people, "What do you, when you see this person, what do you think of? And it was like mind-blowing. The, I, the people were in a room. I think it was like a two-way mirror, which is how focus groups often are. And you write a lot about focus groups. It was mind-blowing to hear what people think, you know, who are not your friends or your family or whatever. And like in an unmarnished way how they sort of think about politics.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I, I think we were talking before we started to record about me being spending a lot of time in Central Texas and yeah. and hearing people's views and from their standpoint it makes a lot of sense. And when you listen to them, you understand their logic. Mm. And a lot of people are resistant to listening to views that are different than their own because there's actually something that happens within the body. We take that as an almost existential threat. They've hooked people up to fMRIs and, and said political statements that they know this person will disagree with. People who are staunchly liberal or staunchly conservative. And what happens within their brain is it reacts as if it's being chased by a bear. I mean, essentially, really? this you know, really fight or flight response gets ginned up within them, and so it makes people shut down. So this is when people are saying to
0: you things you don't agree with, you feel like you're uh-huh. being chased by a bear.
1: Yes. Okay. And okay. And, and we see that. I mean, it, just watch a Sunday morning talk show where nobody's listening either. Right. Where you know it is, and and those are aptly named. They're talk shows. Right. They're you know, people are not <laughs> listening. They're not listening shows. And, and people are yelling over each other and, and arguing and that type of thing. And you can see in their face, it's, it's almost fear. If you really pay attention, it is a fear response. It is how you would react that they're in the fight mode of the fight or flight mode. And it's natural because if you think about it, and back in an evolutionary sense, that when in caveman times, if you were rejected by the tribe, or you couldn't convince people to be on your side, Boy, you were in trouble. <laughs> that it was an ex- existential threat, hmm. and so you really, you know, I was having a conversation with someone the other day who uh, retreated to the countryside in Pennsylvania during COVID. And she had a lot of neighbors and there were a lot of very conservative neighbors who, you know, still had Trump signs out. And, you know, she she's somebody who's very I'm not a political person. And Mm -hmm. just being a journalist, I'm I I'm interested in everybody's point of view Mm -hmm. and which is kind of unpopular. It's it's hard to be that right now. (laughs) It's hard not to be because people want you to be black or white in terms of what your thoughts are. And I I just, I maybe because I listen so often and I can hear different people's point of view, but back to this person who was in Pennsylvania and she got to know this neighbor better because during COVID, there really wasn't anyone else to talk to. And she said, this is one of the nicest people who is the first person who would stop to help someone change a tire or rebuild their fence. And his political views are very different than mine, but I want his friendship. And we have become very good friends, and I never thought I could be friends with somebody like that. And again, that goes back to John Keats' notion of negative capability. People are complicated, and you can't reduce them to a political belief or really even a an action that you found um, objectionable, because there's so much more to and would you want them to reduce you to that? Mm-hmm. And listening is how you know the person fully and how other people can know you fully. And it's okay if you don't agree on everything. And it's what advances us as a society. It's how we find ways to cooperate. We're never going to agree on anything. And if you don't listen, there's no way that you can come to any type of common ground. We're always evolving every day. And if you stop listening to your spouse or your kid or your friends, you'll lose your knowledge of them, your understanding of them. That's how people get in relationships and say, you know, I don't know you anymore. Well, you haven't been keeping up. So I understand what you're saying about
0: accepting political difference and not assuming that people are a certain way because they're different from you. I think people are going to be wondering, though, about, um, you know, what if you have a dispute about who won the 2020 election or, you know, when you get into things that um, just listening uh, isn't enough for you, you know, or you're like, you're not OK with what you just heard, let's say.
1: Well, I have a whole chapter in the book about when to stop listening, Okay. And, um, you know, and, and that's really a personal decision for everyone. I, I would caution people because I think in our culture that we stop too quickly and, and really decide, well, what is my line in the sand? You know, is that really, truly important? If this person's a really good person, will be a good friend? And can I put that aside and be able to live with that difference? And some people can and some people can't. But I I do think that as a culture, we're getting too quick to cut people out because we do disagree about things. And I can't judge for anyone else. And believe me, I'm still learning myself. But we are a lot more than our beliefs. And to also really have compassion and not have hubris ourselves that we are necessarily right about everything. I mean, certainly there are some things that you bring up that... mm, You know, I don't know if I can go along with that, but you're not really going along with what the other person is saying. And is the person fundamentally a good person? Has the person been a friend to you? They're judgments that only you can make. And so the only thing that I would caution people is really look in your heart about what is really important to you. What is your line in the sand? And we're all different about that but to really get down to the humanity of people and how they got there and maybe how they're misinformed. I think a lot of people hear
0: that and will probably think like, you know, of course I could not be friends with somebody who disagreed with me on something like who won the election in 2020. But another potential question to ask might be, if I disown this person and never talk to them ever, will that maybe move their belief? On what happened, like on who won the election? Will that have an impact? And I would guess the answer is no. It, like if the if you disown the person and never speak to
1: them again, will it will it move the needle? No, probably not. Right? No, but if you stayed friends with this person. And the more you all had conversations, and the more you understood why they felt that way, and the more they listened to you as a response, which they will, because people who are listen uh, to other people, people are more likely to listen to you, they'll start to think about the way you think about things. And the more exposure you have to one another is how you move the needle, though slowly, I think we're all fooled in the media because we have the movies where somebody gives this grand speech and and people are either really put in their place or they have this epiphany because they were moved, but that doesn't happen in real life. People don't say, oh, oh, I get it. I see what you're saying. You know, particularly on these things that are so deeply felt. But if someone gets to know the other person and realize that's why they feel that way, this is what they're going on. And then they're exposed more to you and you become friends. It really enriches you as a human being. Not that you're going to agree with this person or necessarily that you have to end up changing this person's mind, but maybe the next go-round, they might not be as likely to believe some of the things that they wholeheartedly believed before because of the exposure to you and your logic. So you have to play the long game. And again... There are legitimate reasons not to listen to another person. If someone's toxic, if someone is demeaning, if someone is just really unkind, is a sociopath. I mean, there are lots of reasons. And also, just you're just tired. You know, that's another valid reason. Listening is hard. So there's times that when you need to exit the conversation because of that. But if you're exiting it because you can't bear to be around someone that you disagree with, I would look at that. Why is that so threatening?
0: One of the things that um, really struck me um, when you talk about couples, you're just talking about uh, people getting along and people feeling like they don't know each other anymore, is that it's actually not uncommon for people to listen less to the people that they're married to or in a serious relationship with than they listen to other people. Which I guess actually, now that you say it, there's a logic to it, but um, it's it's striking when you hear it.
1: Well, it's, there's actual name for it in the psychological literature. It's called the closeness communication bias, and it can happen, like you say, between spouses, between parents and children, best friends, colleagues. You know, even your boss. You feel like you know I know him so well. You know I. I've been here for so many years, you know, I know how this works. And it's really, human beings uh, have really these incredible brains that take in so much information, but these, we are, our brains are built to be pattern recognition machines. And that, and so once we feel like we have got that pattern down, we go into this autopilot mode. Because we don't want to use any brain power that we don't need to. Our brains use up an incredible amount of energy. People don't realize it, but your brain uses up so much energy that you are trying to conserve it whenever you can. And that's how stereotypes and bias happen. But it also happens in these very close relationships, like with your spouse. You know, I know them so well, and the brain just sort of shuts down. And so if you don't continually listen to that person in your life, you will lose touch with that person. You will fail you will cease to see who they are, so there's that wonderful quote about a marriage being a conversation that never ends that is just what is love but wanting to be a part of someone's story and understanding that person's story, that person's evolving story, and also the part you play in it if somebody's listening and
0: they're thinking um I think I'm a good listener or even I think I'm not that good a listener. But regardless, what could I do? What are like the first couple of steps I could take to be a better listener? What are like the top couple of things you would say? Here's how to get started.
1: Well, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, because it is something that is all encompassing and there are lots of things you can do. It's not hard, but there are lots of things you need to be aware of. And I guess to start... I would have people, when they enter any conversation, to tell themselves that I want to find out two things. I want to leave the conversation with these two bits, you being able to answer two questions. And the two questions would be, what did I learn about that person? What is something that I learned about that person? And the second question that you would need to be able to answer after the conversation is, how did that person feel about what we were talking about? And if you have that motivation and you have that top of mind as you're going into the conversation, you have this goal and actually concluding the conversation, being able to answer those two questions, you're well on your way. Do you worry at
0: all that we kind of talked about this at the beginning that we're so... Um, I think you call it like addicted to distraction. We like having our phones nearby. People often like having earbuds in because they don't want the silence. They have something they want to listen to. That we're so addicted to distraction that it's going to be hard for people to break out of that and be like, yeah, I want to just listen to what people have to
1: say. I do think it's hard. I will say that. And that was why I wrote the book because I felt like we really needed Emmanuel. <laughs> we, right. We've gotten to the point where it's gotten so bad. But at the same time, you, you touched on the loneliness, just this incredible loneliness that is taking over our society, even before COVID. But you know, when, when you see just the, the number of overdoses, what brings people to addiction is loneliness. They are filling something. And I really think that pain is leading a lot of people to realize what's missing. And really what's missing is that sense of connection. And you cannot connect with another person if you don't listen to them. And going back to Lady Randolph Churchill, and what makes another person feel good, makes them feel smart, makes them feel brilliant. Listen to them.
0: Kate Murphy is a New York Times contributor. She's the author of You're Not Listening, What You're Missing, and Why It Matters. Kate,
1: thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was fun to talk to you, Kara.
0: As always, I love hearing what you've got to say. I'm on Twitter at Kara, K-A-R-A, E, Miller. Let me know what you're thinking. And you can find this whole segment on Apple Podcasts. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.